Hi, and welcome to How to Ruin Dinner Conversations from the University. I'm your host, Mary Trace, and I would say that my co-host is here, and he is here, but he's not my co-host today. He's my guest. He's our special guest, and we're going to be talking about a paper he's been writing for an independent study that he's doing, and... I thought it would be interesting to talk a little bit about the process as well as the subject matter. So I I imagine this conversation is going to weave in and out of those two aspects. Um, James, (laughs) James, you're doing this this course with Dr. Fenner. Correct. And he's given you some feedback on your paper you've been writing already. So we will mention Dr. Fenner and his suggestions as we go along. So you, listener, now get the wisdom of Dr. (laughs) Fenner as well. So, James, welcome to the other side of the table. Uh, Thank you for Uh, having me. It's exciting. It's going to be fun. And um, one of the uh, things I always say to my students, uh, I always like to have them... um, present their papers. One of the real bummers of writing papers can be that it's you and the professor and nobody else ever gets to engage with it unless you bore some friends at a dinner table, which could, could be dinner. a good way to ruin dinner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it's you do all this work and it often feels like nobody gets to hear the the wisdom that you have gained. Oh, so I gotta consider, disagree with that. <laughs> consider this your opportunity. Yeah. So I appreciate it. You want to introduce your topic? I think everybody knows who you are. Yeah, or, I hope so. Well, they ought to know. Um, uh, they can go back and find out in our introduction yeah, to this yeah. semester, anyway. But um, you want to introduce the paper, and we'll do a kind of a normal paper yep. thing. We'll define some terms. Yep. And then we'll talk about the problems and the benefits mm-hmm. and where you mm-hmm. went, all that stuff. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll introduce the thesis and uh, a couple of key terms all in one. All in one. Um, so the DIS, the title of is Moral Agent, Moral Patient. Wait, you, sorry. <laughs> you can't be throwing acronyms around without explaining. Directed and Independent Study. Yeah, there we Therefore, go. <laughs> henceforth known as DIS, um, <laughs> is Moral Agents and Moral Patients. Um, so, and I'll define that in a second, but my thesis within that is that I am proposing that the boundaries of moral patienthood should be expanded to other organisms that, that aren't human um, and can be pragmatically done uh, via the use of panpsychism. So what are moral agents, what are moral patients, and what is panpsychism? I'm just going to clarify something because I think it's something I need is moral patients with the C, but you are saying patient, right? And plural. So just to be clear, we're talking about moral people, things. Correct. You know, an ex... on a spectrum. Yes. Um, so don't be like me and hear patience yes. like nope. you're tolerant. Not a virtue. This not a virtue. Is not, <laughs> this is not moral tolerance. Not, not actually, you know, it's funny you bring that up because I tried to, I don't like using the same word over and over again. It kind of sounds boring. Um, so I, I, in my paper, I flip between moral patienthood and yeah. patiency. And Dr. Fenner's like, don't use patiency, just use patienthood. I like patienthood myself yeah. Yeah. because it, 
doesn't resonate as you know, patients. But yeah, yeah, it, it's more clear. It's and just, when you read these things, yeah. it's clear. But right, okay. Um, so I've interrupted. No, you're you're all before good. you've gotten very you're far. Good. So I'm going to first define a moral agent and a moral patient. And in my paper, I just decided and to make it a little simpler to define it as a binary and view it as a binary, even though it might not be. Um, I would have to spend another three thousand words describing <laughs> the complexities of of all of that. So. A moral agent is one who can take responsibility for their actions or lack thereof, like not acting, um, while a moral patient is one who cannot. Um, and there's this philosopher named Tom Regan, and I put this quote in my paper and I really like it. And he says that moral patients, in a word, cannot do what is right or wrong. Um, so traditional boundaries would be, you know, a moral patient would be, uh, you know, infants, children, uh, people who are like severely sick, the, the you know, elderly in, in a lot of cases, uh, I guess the typical example is someone in a coma. They can't do what's right or wrong. They're just there. Right. Um, and it's also extended traditionally, tr uh, extended to like animals as well, like pets or livestock, um, things that or uh, you know, creatures that humans have a direct impact on. So I have a cat and he's the most important creature in the universe. And I have a moral responsibility to care for him as a moral agent, because I am the moral agent. I can take that action and I can have that moral responsibility towards um, that animal. And he has no responsibility to be grateful for you. No, he, he has no responsibility not to bite and scratch me, which he does every day. But that's yeah. fine. That's fine. That's why we love so him. So he's the moral patient. <laughs> he is the moral and patient. You're the moral agent. Yes. And, and, that, and that can shift depending on context as well. You know, if, if I get hit by a car and I'm in the hospital, you know what, I'm a moral patient at that point. Right. Um, and there are some arguments. Um, the uh, previous version of this paper kind of argued that one can be a moral patient and a moral agent at the same time. That got a little bit too complex, and I moved away from that. Um, but I think there's an argument that, you know, you can, you can be both. Well, I think you could make that argument quite easily by viewing reason as part of that mm -hmm. um, definition of what it means to be a moral agent. Mm -hmm. And as one's reasoning ability uh, advances as a child, one mm -hmm. takes on more agency, and as it diminishes as we age, mm -hmm. um, then we you know, aren't as responsible right. and are owed perhaps more grace. Or whatever word we want, or patience. How about, how about <laughs> I confuse keep coming it? Up? How about I confuse it by using yeah. that word? Yeah. Okay. And and to kind of spoil the you know some of our plans a little bit. I mean that kind of goes into that whole idea of suffering is a very. Uh, I would prefer to use the term culture. I know mm -hmm. you're going to use a different term, but you know, using your example of a child who's growing up, we're enculturating them in whatever specific culture we're in, and in that enculturation process. They at some point turn into an agent, which right. seems arbitrary. Like, oh, you're 18 years old now. You're now you're or, a moral agent. Or that, seven. Or Isn't seven. That age of reason, seven. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you. Uh, it is um, definitely arbitrary. Yeah, yeah. So, and and it really does depend on a lot of factors, like, you know, culture and religion and all right. that stuff. So, well, to go back to your yep. binary yep. division, yep. we're going to be talking agency and patient. 
patient hood, right? Right. That's, with, with, with that's more, where we were. Right? Yes. With more of a focus on moral patient hood, because my argument is it should be expanded. And the issue that I'm kind of taking up here is that um, that traditional conceptions of moral patienthood are just too limited and they're static. And it, it just seems to me that it hasn't really changed that much. And our understanding of the world through philosophy, through science, um, continually changes. Yeah. So I think it's really important to also evaluate who and what we consider is and is not a moral patient as time goes on, because we could be neglecting some species of animal that really should be a moral patient and is morally considerable, but we're just neglecting them and are, you know, ethically, like there's a lot of ethical implications in that. So sure. I think it's an impo important topic to, to kind of bring up and expand. Great. And <laughs> within that, you yeah. also are talking about panpsychism. Correct. So let's define that lovely term. Yes. Um, so I am relying on Thomas Nagel. Um, he, everyone probably knows him for the paper, what, it, what It's Like to Be a Bat, which I also mentioned in here. But he also wrote a paper called Panpsychism. And I really like his definition. The way he defines it is the view that the basic physical con uh, constituents of the universe have mental properties, whether or not they are part of a living organism. Okay, can you tease that out for us? Yes, um, and uh, the reason I like it is because he uses mental properties and kind of what we were talking about before we went on air, I think that is way less of a loaded term than consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, and I do spend a lot of time on consciousness. And like whenever I say that word, everyone probably has like an image that pops, pops into their head, but mental properties, I think there's more flexibility in that. So... The uh, the stereotype, I guess, of panpsychists are that they think atoms are conscious, which is not wrong. But when they say atoms are conscious, they don't mean it in the way that you probably think it means, that they're self-aware or they can file their own taxes or whatever it is. Um, the panpsychists delineate very clearly between science and the, the, the job of science and the job of philosophy. So when a scientist looks at an atom, they are measuring charge and spin and position in space. But none of those attributes tell you what the atom is intrinsically, i.e., if you took some intrinsic quality away from an atom, it's no longer an atom. And what they argue parsimoniously is that intrinsic nature is consciousness. And they leave that intentionally very vague. And I've talked to scientists, people who are, are STEM majors, and they hate, they hate this. <laughs> what, what is the, you, why is that such a useful definition? The Nagel? Yeah, the Nagel definition. Because he does several things within it. First of all, he uses mental properties instead of consciousness, which I, I said, you know, I really like that a lot better, and it gives you a lot more conceptual Meaning ground. Meaning what exactly? To, to tease that apart, yes. let's talk about what yes. you, what he means and what you like about mental properties. Mental properties to me can encapsulate self-awareness like, like we have. It could encapsulate intelligence, decision-making. It could also encapsulate basic bare awareness. Um, and again, this boy... It, it could, could, yeah. Can it mean simply sensation? Like I'm thinking... Oh, God, I'm about to expose my ignorance. Oh, forgive me. 
uh, like an atom being hit by another atom. It could. Yes, it could. It's it's that vague. It's that vague. That vague sounds. Yes, because but, I think consciousness to a lot of people leads to more self awareness than pure perception. Um, and and or. The, or being able to be acted upon and responding to that action. That's why I was thinking yes. of atoms hitting into each other and yep. charging. Perception isn't quite the right yep. word there, but something's happening. Yes. And, and the, that and qualifies as a mental property for Nagel. Yes. Um, I'm intuiting that. So I'll tell you the, the point at which this made a lot of sense to me is when I thought about the, like you're saying, the positions of atoms and it's, there's a lot of atoms around that atom, and it seems to me that their position is, in space is not arbitrary. Right. That it is interacting in a very loose sense of, of that word with other objects, quote-unquote, around it. Um, so in my mind, the fact that it is not arbitrary, that it is in a certain point in space, and it can combine in a non-arbitrary manner alludes to, to a mental property right. in that way. And this is what people like about quantum mechanics, right? right? Yeah. That, that, that we have this capacity to be impacted. Yes. And that's what he can include by talking about mental properties as opposed to consciousness. Right. Which has been... Diluted. Yeah, diluted. By, yeah, yeah. Because right. yeah, if he said consciousness, people are like, oh, okay, atoms are self-aware. And that's totally not what he's saying. Um, but... To your original question, why I like this definition, besides that mental property part, is he's already in the definition itself kind of answering a potential counterclaim by saying at the end of it, whether or not they, as in the con conscious particles, atoms, whatever, are part of a living organism. So a potential counterclaim would be, okay, so are you saying all objects are conscious? And that's not what it's saying. The microphones we're speaking into are still inanimate objects, even if... They are uh, made up of conscious atoms or atoms with mental properties. That does not necessarily mean that those atoms with mental properties, which is a mouthful, can combine and they have to combine into a conscious whole. Right. And that's going to change our moral agency in respect to them. No, have uh, I gone too quickly? Our, too our, far? Our, our patient, uh, how how we interact with pa our moral patients as moral agents, I would argue. Yes, okay, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah, Great. yeah. Great. Um, yes, that is kind of one of my, I, I don't know if you want to get into the suffering model or if you want to. Sure. So, well, let's, let's interject a little yeah. process here, right? yeah. a paper process. Yeah. So you've been, as part of your DIS, you have been reading... Mm -hmm. You selected the topic. Correct. From previous reading you'd done outside school, yep. right? Yep. Then you agreed with Dr. Fenner what you would write on and and continue to read about. So you came in August 23rd, first day, with the paper already in mind and knowing that that paper was going to be the sort of the hallmark of your work or the whatever word I want to use. I knew fruits I of your labor. Right. I, I knew I wanted to involve panpsychism. That's all I knew. Okay. So the way this this process kind of works with this DIS is we had an initial meeting kind of in the first week or so of the semester where we just kind of go into our general ideas. 
so the way the process works um, is there are several meetings that uh, I have with Dr. Fender, and there are other students as well who are who are doing this DIS. Their topics are different. Um, so the first meeting was to to you know uh, figure out what your thesis will be, uh, and I kind of lagged behind the game a little bit because I knew I wanted to to pull in panpsychism, but that's all I knew. And my first meeting, I kind of floundered around a little bit. I'm like, I, I don't know how to fit it in, but I want to. And I did a little bit more research. And it took till until the second meeting, a month into the semester, before Dr. Ferner said, hey, why don't you look at moral patienthood and how you can expand it with panpsychism? panpsychism. That's interesting. Yeah. So from about the end of September to now, I did like 7,000, 7,000 word draft. <laughs> right. Good. So uh, the reason I'm interested in that is because the sooner you can get started on a paper, mm-hmm. um, the clearer your work becomes and it yeah. takes some time. Yep. So even as you, you know, think you know what you're mm-hmm. going to write on and what you're interested in, that does shift. Yeah. And this is also where having a, um, you know, a, a mentor yeah. can really help, even if that mentor is a peer mentor. Right. Um, it's really helpful to get other points of view and other people questioning you. So that's right. a little process. So you, so you've got this um, paper in mind. Did we define panpsychism? Yes, we as did clearly as we as you wanted to. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Because we can get more into it, but that would be. Okay. We'd be here Good. all afternoon. Okay. Well, <laughs> so the, so then we were going to move into the idea of suffering as the traditional Correct. sort of uh, criteria for defining moral agency, right? Moral patienthood. Moral patienthood. Thank you, give them flip. Um, so, yeah, just briefly the suffering model. Um, it's That's kind of my term. <laughs> I'm going to take credit for that. Um the suffering model more or less says um, that if an organism can suffer or has the ability to suffer or experience pain, um, then they are a moral patient. Um, so with the cat example, my cat can definitely feel pain. Um, ergo, he is moral patient. An infant can feel pain. Can they suffer? I, I, I don't know. Um, but it seems like those two terms are kind of pain and suffering seem to be interchangeably used, um, even though they probably shouldn't be. Yeah. I mean, I I would argue that suffering is a loaded word. Yeah. And that it's loaded politically and particularly religiously. Mm-hmm. And if we can think back to our conversation around the Camino, I mean, there, suffering is elevated mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and is is packed into, and I'm using that word packed as mm-hmm. a pun, but packed into the ethos mm-hmm. of the whole experience. Mm-hmm. And it is through suffering that we are redeemed. I mean, that's a religious idea. If you're Buddhist, you talk about eliminating right. Right, suffering and recognizing that suffering right. is preventing you from reaching enlightenment and, mm-hmm. and detaching ourselves from those feelings. Mm-hmm. So, what I hear is certainly loaded. I think it's also politically loaded. Yeah. Um, I think we, particularly in America, have a culture which elevates um, a work ethic that relies on this idea of the harder you work, the more successful yeah. you'll be. So yeah. um, I, 
those are just my ideas on that word itself. Right. Um, and yet, yeah. I would say it's useful to consider right. that when other beings, other things feel, now I'm going to use the word pain as mm-hmm. opposed to suffering, when right. they feel pain, it's, it's important to not inflict that as a moral agent. Absolutely. Uh, and, and in that way, I mean, the charge against that, that model saying it's, it's arbitrary, why not prioritize, I don't know, joy or sadness instead of suffering, you know, we all have this kind of, it seems like we humans have this innate um, uh, idea that, yeah, pain is what should be avoided, you know, yes. not at, at all costs, like you're saying with the Camino, but generally. Right. Um, and I wonder if, if I called it the pain model and I just took out the word suffering in this whole essay and put pain in there, you know, I, I don't know if there would still be the same critique against it. Which well, would be what are you? Yes. Let's go to your critique of the suffering um, model. So I, I more so hold that it is extremely um, human centric, mm-hmm. that it relies on our, our human view of what suffering and what pain is kind of alluding to what you're saying a little earlier where in, and, and this is more of a devil's advocate more than anything, but we just don't know what, when a cat experiences pain, we can maybe imagine what that might be like, but we don't know what that is like for, for the cat itself because their consciousness is just, you know, and in, in here I go into consciousness and how that's more of a spectrum as well. And it's not a better or worse thing. It's, you know, we, we have a spectrum between self-awareness and as I define it, like bare awareness or bare perception. Um, and, you know, animals like livestock and pets are maybe more towards that bare perception than, than self-awareness. It's still complex. You know, it still demonstrates complex mental properties, but we just don't know what that experience is like. For all we know, a cat could care less if they're in pain or not. I don't, doesn't seem like that's the case, but maybe, I, I, you know, I don't know. So we are relying on um, this kind of idea, I think is laden in there where it's like, okay, if an organism can experience pain in this very specific way that we mean in human pain, <laughs> then it's a moral patient. Right. And, and that's kind of where I'm taking the issue with right. it. Is there room in that now for the, for the hard science biology to tell us what's happening and nerve endings that send signals to the brain. Is that, is there a place for that kind of analysis in your work? Or do you think that just takes you down a road you're not prepared to go? So, okay, so there's a, actually a good example I bring up. And I, and I do argue that later on that uh, plants mm-hmm. should be considered moral patients uh, because they demonstrate this quality. Uh, they, they have something called volatile, volatile organic compounds, VOCs for short. And they basically have a plant in an environment. And let's say there's an invasive, invasive species that comes in. And there's other plants in that environment that might be threatened by this. So that one plant that senses the invasive species will emit this carbon-based VOC. Um, and it will be communicated throughout you know, the, the flora and fauna surrounding it. Um, and a lot of people interpret that as a stress hormone. I mean, like you can kind of see how they would go in that direction. Now, I argue that 
a VOC is, is evidence of complex mental properties. It is perceiving its environment, reacting to it, and communicating to other beings about it. Um, with the suffering model, you could say, oh, a plant's suffering. Yeah. But I still think there's an interpretational bent to that because it's all we know is that it is emitting VOCs. Right. You know, we could say it's it's stress, but I think that's our human conception layered on top of it. And in the same point with with an animal, like the you know studying a lab rat, you can see that okay, here's the pain center in the brain, and it's being lit up when we electrocute its paws. That's all the information we really have. But what the intrinsic nature of that pain is, what it is actually felt subjectively by that animal or by that plant, it's unknown to us. Yeah. So you're sticking with your pain model. And I, I right, your pain language. Or, well, or I'm arguing against it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm arguing that it's too limiting. Um. And the original idea, kind of going back to the drafting process, once I figured out, I, I learned about VOCs and all that stuff, I'm like, oh, I can expand the suffering model. And I can, um, like in my intro, I say, my first draft of my intro, I put that in there. I was like, yes, we can expand the suffering model as well. And here's my evidence with plants. Like they're obviously emitting stress hormones. And Dr. Penner specifically said, the suffering model is boring, tie it to panpsychism. Okay. So what I'm trying to do now like real, re, you know, really right now, I'm trying to jump through, through some hoops to connect to the panpsychism. <laughs> and what are the stumbling blocks? I, I, I wait a minute. I yeah. think we have to go back a little bit. We talked about consciousness in relation to suffering. Mm -hmm. Did we talk enough about mental properties in regard to that? I think we did, yeah, right? I so I, I think we're good. So I just want to make sure we yeah. understand what our two criteria are that you think your system can handle better than the suffering. It, yeah. Expanding the suffering model. Yes. It allows for a broader and uh, in some ways more exact yeah. definition. Um, Is that right? Have yes. I got this right? Yeah. Okay, good. Now, if you wanted, so again, behind the curtain a little bit, mm -hmm. my hope for this podcast is to inspire some more because I do have more criteria and more um, uh, uh, critiques that I got from Dr. Fenner that I'm trying to revise and put in there. So I was hoping this would kind of yes, inspire well, me a little bit. Let's do it. All right. So something just occurred to me. Okay. So remember when we were talking earlier about um, kind of defining what it would mean for an atom to, atom to be conscious or to have mental properties? And there's that, that dividing line between science and philosophy where science describes what the behavior of that atom, but consciousness in, in the guise of panpsychism can describe what it intrinsically is. Okay. Now, when I was talking about the plants and the suffering, kind of sounded like the same argument to me, yes. where we can observe neural pathways that might indicate pain and we can observe VOCs in the, in, in the environment but that doesn't tell us the intrinsic nature of those VOCs or of that neural pathway and what that subjectively translates into. So but, that might be a better route to go in as far as determining criteria for new criteria for mental patienthood. Right. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Keep going. Okay. Right? <laughs> yeah. You just keep going with yeah. these things. And, and what other sort of criteria are you expanding on? So the, so what I have so far, so the, the, the structure of the paper is define my terms, 
introduce why expanding moral patient is important, explore consciousness and kind of not demystify it, but unpack it a little bit. So I'm not just using this word and this word consciousness and people are thinking one thing when I mean another. Right. Go into panpsychism, detail that a little bit. Um, and then the suffering model and then propose a more expansive and flexible view. Because again, the point here is to help the concept of moral patienthood keep up with the, the ever-expanding realm of science and philosophy and our understanding of the world. So I want to defeat, quote-unquote, Dr. Fenner's words, not mine, I want to def defeat the suffering model. Mm -hmm. And I do that by proposing a new model, which is based on panpsychism, but we'll, we'll get into it was kind of hard for me to do that. So I have two new criteria for what it would mean to be a moral patient. And number one, it must be an organism who is a conscious combination of conscious atoms. So earlier we talked about how panpsychists don't argue in favor of, you know, a table being conscious because the combination of conscious atoms need not result in a conscious whole. So again, there's a, there's a dividing line there. And for something to be a moral patient, they need to be a conscious whole. And the second condition is that they exhibit complex mental prop properties. And the VOCs are a, in my view, an example of that. And um, because they are interacting with what with others, yes, it it goes. They are absorbing yep. information yep. and passing it on to others with effect. Something, that? something to the that effect. So the purpose of having two criteria is to find this middle ground between something that isn't limiting, like I argued the suffering model is, and and something that isn't way too expansive. Because if I wanted to insert panpsychism in this, I could just say, okay, every conscious atom is a moral patient yeah, now. And then we've got to deal like, with the table. Right. Then we get, yeah, then we have to then deal with the table or, or going like this, like yeah. like uh, brushing brushing my arm. Yeah. <laughs> I put it in here as like a mini genocide under that view because I'm brushing off trillions of cells, dead right. cells. Right. So, um, can can yeah. we just go back to one of the problems of suffering yep. as as a model? In part, it's because it's anthrop anthropocentric. Is that is that your big or that is what I see? Is I'll just take responsibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that 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 model no longer fits our present understanding of ourselves in the world, and probably hasn't for a while. Right. But anthropocentrism is so deeply ingrained in much of what we do. Right. That. We don't, I mean, the, the one I always come back to is with climate change. Right. The world's probably going to be fine. We won't be. Hmm. But we will be, you know, we'll be the ones that suffer along with other creatures. Right. But we frame that problem mm -hmm. as a problem for us, right. uh, for the world, excuse me, right. for the world. But really, it's truly only a problem for us. Or not yes. only for us. I'll, no, I'll, but, I, I see where you're going primarily, with that, yeah. we see it in terms of what it's yeah. going to do for to us. Right. And we're eager to fix it because we don't want to suffer behind it. Right. And that that kind of thinking is endemic of an anthropocentric worldview. Yeah. It, it, and it, what it, you're yeah. offering with yeah. this panpsychist approach 
is a much broader worldview, and that could help shift the paradigm mm-hmm. um, so that we don't see ourselves as centered mm-hmm. in <laughs> in every absolutely everything we do, right. which, I mean, I, we can help it to some degree. Of right. course, we're going to be concerned with ourselves. Right. Right. But in what ways does that limit our thinking? Right. Is that in part what you're offering and what you yeah. think you're trying to defeat, quote unquote, or um, just to broaden? Right, right. And I think you're hitting at something really, really um, accurate there where it's like, Humans don't like pain, so this other creature must not like pain as much as we do. Right. And I feel like that's what the suffering model is kind of alluding to a little bit. It always uh, puts us at the center. Huh? Right, right. And um, it's also to expand past, because I could have said, oh, um, if something is conscious, then it's a moral patient, and I'm defining consciousness under the view of panpsychism, and here's how that works. Um, or I could have gone the what it's like to be a bat. Now it's really hard for us to 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 say, I know what it, it is like to be a plant. It's really like a bat. Sure, we can kind of imagine that, but a but a plant or a fungi, it's a little more difficult. So in that way, I'm trying to expand even past that, where we might not even be able to imagine what it's like to be a little insect, but we can still consider we can still consider it a moral patient. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, my my whole theme here is expansion and flexibility and. It's a little vague, and I would take that criticism anytime because it's purposely vague. It's so that... And what is the benefit of it being vague? Maybe we right. should look at that a second. Yeah, and it, because, uh, again, I'm trying to keep it not in line, but I'm trying to like keep up with philosophy and science. And for all we know, we could have a new... Like, okay, if I told you 10 years ago that scientists think uh, octo- octopi... I think that's the right one. Octopi are um, self-aware. You'd probably call me crazy, but nowadays right. that science right. that science is yeah. pretty well. One, one movie, right? Right. My right. octopus yeah. teacher, yeah. whatever it was called, right, yeah. changed yeah. all of our views. Right. Um, and and the research kind of backs that up now, you sure. know, and it's widely disseminated now. Um, so my my conceit here is like, what if a traditional, just hypothetically, what if a traditional uh, view of moral patienthood did not include octopi, but now all of a sudden we're thinking, eh, you know what, they might be self-aware, which normally would qualify you. Right. So now we're unnecessarily excluding when we could be including. Yeah. And that's that's kind of my whole, you know, position. Right. And so that uh, in some way, do you think that the line, this uh, crisp line, um, of moral patienthood is also um, as it as it broadens mm-hmm. and as it becomes less crisp. Mm-hmm. Is it also expanding the uh, role of moral agency or the those who have moral agency? It it very well could. I, I have a whole section in here about um, potential pragmatic applications. And uh, I mean, uh, an example I bring up is ethical foraging. Um, and, and that's a form of foraging where, you know, the agent is more uh, aware and knowledgeable of the environment around them. And they are only foraging for resources that sustain them and nothing else, like no surplus, no stockpiling, nothing unnecessary. 
And that could be a pragmatic uh, application of viewing yeah. a plan as a moral patient. Yeah. All of a sudden, right. you're not overfishing. Right. Because you recognize your responsibility to the species as a whole. Right. We touched on this a little bit yeah. before where a moral patienthood may be extended not to individual individual things, beings within right. a species, but to the species as a whole. Yes. And then your your moral agency extends to that entirety, but not to the individual. I think the example yeah. that you and I talked about were roaches. Yeah, which you don't like, apparently. Which, I found out today. <laughs> which I would not be opposed to getting rid of the whole species, but killing <laughs> it, in, and so that killing it in my house yeah. is different than, you know, making sure there's never another Roach, Roach ever, ever, ever again. Right. Uh, it, it, and there's a philosopher that, that kind of goes into that. He's not talking about panpsychism in, in particular, but he is talking about the, you know, moral, uh, our moral attitude towards insects specifically. And because um, I didn't know this before I did this paper, there are quintillions. The, and the number of insects, number in the quintillions. Right. Sure. Right. Right. There are lots of them. There are a lot of them. Too much for us to 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 you know keep track of and and uh, you know uh, act in a moral way for every single individual one. So instead of overwhelming ourselves, frankly, we can have interest in the survival of their species as a whole. So under this view, if someone decided to be a panpsychist moral moral agent, you know. Um, they would still have pest control, and they would still eat a salad, um, even though the, they would maybe consider the the lettuce at one time a moral patient or the termite or whatever they're getting rid of a moral patient. They can still ethically consume the salad and ethically engage in the pest control. Right, because they've understood it in this broader way. Right. Right. Yeah. Do you see a downside to doing that? I mean, is it is that a line that can get too fuzzy? Um, and I guess I'm thinking about euthanasia. That oh. at what point um, does a human being no longer qualify as a moral agent? I think this yeah. is, you know, an, an argument or a discussion that's worth having yeah yeah you know, like at what point is is it time to say death is a better situation situation right better whatever it's called so uh as with the theme of a lot of of you know this whole paper as well is i'm proposing a spectrum to a lot of things so we can get into biocentrism a little on this. So a potential counterclaim to what I'm proposing is that it is a form of biocentrism. And biocentrism is roughly, very roughly, I didn't get way too deep into it, but roughly it's, it's the idea that we are holding individual animals, plants, maybe the environment as equally moral, morally considerable as a human being. And that's not what I am advocating for here. Um, again, if we did, let's say we lived in a world where we felt like an ant was as uh, equal morally as a human being, we'd have a lot of issues. Um, yeah, <laughs> it'd be quite overwhelming. We would not be able to act at all. Um, but instead, it's kind of more of a spectrum. So I'm 
framing it in between this the spectrum of like you know on one end it's just like something we see as an object so you know i would say currently maybe under the suffering model that uh, a plant would be viewed as just a thing like this table is just a thing and then on the other end of that spectrum is like a full-blown self-aware intelligent decision-making human being a moral agent let's say um and in turn you know the ant might be not might not be as equal as the as an infant let's say which would be more close to the self-aware intelligent human being um but it wouldn't be an object we're just lifting it from the status of object into the realm of moral consideration right 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 it's going from zero to even if it's zero to one you know just all i'm asking is to consider that yeah and I, I do think it's worth considering the way in which this spectrum can work in both directions. Yep. Yep. Um, and it's, com it's complex mm -hmm. and it's situational, mm -hmm. which is never an easy um, right. <laughs> a way to make uh, rules or to right. make um, ideas that are easy to follow. Right, right. Right, or right. to have criteria that are easy to to recognize right and really that seems to be one of the big issues around your your paper in general mm -hmm. is coming up with the language and the criteria mm -hmm. so that you can hopefully be consistent in right. the application of these ideas right and then justify your arguments Right. I, I think that's uh, what Dr. Fenner would like me to work towards. I was kind of content with saying, this is just an exploration. Let's see how it would work out. But <laughs> I think Dr. Fenner wants something a little bit more concrete, yeah. <laughs> like, you're, like you're proposing. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take some time, I mean, yeah. to get back to process, especially as one is um, in school and writing papers. Mm -hmm. um, that the expectation, I think, is often that you're going to solve some big problem. Yeah. But often it's the case that you start to recognize the problems mm -hmm. and begin to address them mm -hmm. rather than solve them completely. I mean, right. that's the work of your dissertation when you get there, right? Right, right. Um, but I, I, I'm afraid we've run out of time. It went so fast. Yeah, it did. it did. But we can come back to these because in the next couple of episodes, we're going to have your fellow DIS um, classmates, classmates yeah. uh, talking to us about their papers. Mm -hmm. And so I would expect these ideas are going to come back to us. Yep, absolutely. So, James, next time you'll be sitting next to me yep. as opposed to across from me. Yep. But thank you very much. I appreciate you. Um, sharing your ideas and where they're going with us. Well, thank you for having me. All right. We'll <laughs> talk to you all soon. Yeah.